Hello there, it's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast where we talk about all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm talking with Nick Wilson and Ewan Tovey. Nick Wilson has just published an article in Anaesthesia regarding the airborne transmission of coronavirus. I'll put that in the show notes, and for ASA members, I'll put the link in the ASA forum on the podcast thread. Ewan Tovey is an aerobiologist, and like so many things in this pandemic, six months ago, I had no idea what an aerobiologist does. So in this episode, we talk about airborne transmission, we tackle some of the controversies about aerosol-generating procedures, as well as whether the community should be wearing masks. Again, if you have any comments or feedback, please email them to us at asa at asa.org.au or join in the conversation on the ASA forum. Hope you enjoy listening. Thanks so much for recording this podcast with me. Pleasure. I know you guys have got a lot of information and maybe we might need to come back and do a second podcast. So let's start with some introductions. So we've got Nick Wilson and you and Toby. Sure, I'm Nick. I'm from London originally and I'm currently working at the Prince of Wales as an ICU fellow. I'll be moving back to the UK soon actually to carry on my anaesthetics training. I got interested in the airborne story when I was asked to get involved in writing guidelines for intubation. And then the more I read, the more I realised that the quality of the evidence was very poor. I realised that there was this parallel world of people like Ewan and others who've been working in this field for a long time, aerobiologists, physicists, people with virology interest, and they've actually been studying and modelling how the respiratory tract forms particles. I realised that there is quite a lot of understanding about the basic principles of airborne particle formation and transmission. And then that just led to an ongoing interest because the pandemic is just rife. And this topic is very important. We've been working on airborne particle experiments at the Prince of Wales Hospital, and that's going really well. It's very exciting, actually. We were doing the first measurements of non-invasive ventilation yesterday with our system. Great. Keep an eye out for your name. I think you're heading for brilliant things in your future. And Ewan, you're an aerobiologist. I guess that's what I call myself. I've done maybe 30 years, I guess, 40 or something, of allergen research. So I became interested just in dust mites and the Really in the 1980s, I was the first person to measure mite allergens in the environment. So my skills are setting things up of methods, really, technical methods. So I used to measure aeroallergens and everything was really done with vacuum cleaner sampling of dust in people's beds. And then I became more interested in personal exposure, what people are truly exposed to. So I used to build little filters that people wore in their nose that we could use for sampling people's exposure, which actually gives you a totally different picture of what people's exposure really is. Uh, so I became interested in particles and that led on to an interest in viruses because viruses are very important in asthma as well. And I started off with a couple of honor students and we were the first people to measure viruses on exhaled breathing. And then the most recent thing I did before I retired was uh, running a large community study measuring exhaled viruses in children and looking at their asthma symptoms. So we developed techniques for home collecting of exhaled viruses. Uh, both by nasal washing and breathing through these filters we developed. So kids would self-sample. So it is possible to do a lot of really nice sampling of people's nasal viruses without sticking a wire probe down their nose. And, and then I retired and then I came back into this because of what's happening at the moment and I had some expertise at viruses and aerosols. And so that's, that's where I am. Well, yeah, I can see how your work is so relevant for coronavirus. I was wanting to go back 
to very basic stuff. And just what is an aerosol? An aerosol, I guess, is any airborne particle when we're interested in those that are involved in disease. But there is an enormous range in terms of sizes, which goes right down to the, the nano size that can penetrate in, and they can be very large. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings between different camps on the behaviour of particles. And I think the, the unusual thing about human-produced aerosols is the effect of humidity and how they change in size. And once they've left your mouth, they will shrink by a huge amount. And so this dichotomy, which has been brought up by WHO, will use five microns. It's difficult to completely put in context because the particle that leaves your mouth is 20 microns, probably shrinks to something of four microns. So it actually starts life as a droplet, and two seconds later, it's an aerosol, which makes the whole field very confusing. Exactly what point in time are you talking about? The other thing that's really weird about this, if you come from an allergy background, you're used to dealing with hay fever or dust mite. Certainly everyone knows about hay fever, which is something like a 25 micron particle. And that clearly floats around, will come into your house, travel large distances. If it came out of your mouth, some of it obviously does fall within a meter, probably most of it does. But enough of it remains airborne just by turbulence, et cetera, to create a whole disease category that affects a third of the world's population. So big particles do travel through the air. And I guess when you come from different fields, you start to see particles differently. So it doesn't explain what an aerobiologist is. And clearly, I'm still learning and we still have a lot to learn. I think one thing that's probably worth mentioning is there's this concept that larger particles will follow this ballistic trajectory so they'll obey the, the law of mass and they'll just fall down and then there becomes a point where particles float essentially or travel much much further distances and I think one of the issues with what a lot of people believe or what's commonly circulated is, is the five to ten micron size being the cutoff for that and actually these experiments go back to the 1930s someone called Wells and he was the first person to look at droplets and droplet spread using different methods. And actually the size that he said at that time was 50 to 100 would be the sort of ballistic property. And I think a lot of the evidence now suggests that particles 20, 30, 40 certainly would travel long distances potentially, but certainly beyond what is sort of classically described as one to two metres, that safe range. There will, of course, be a size of droplet that will just fall. But from my understanding, larger particles than 5 to 10 microns will travel further. And there's a lot more factors that will influence that than just the particle size alone. So as you had mentioned, humidity is very important. But so is, of course, the force at which that particle is expelled. It would be silly to say that somebody breathing quietly or talking is the same as somebody shouting or coughing violently what the flow is like in the room, what the particle is composed of. It's more complex than just size. And I think that's important for people to understand as well. Yeah, for people in the aerodynamic game talk about a multi-phasic turbulent flow coming out of your mouth. So it's basically a puff of warm air, which is circulating in a whole range of ways. But that is warm. If the room is 20, 25 degrees, that air coming out of your mouth initially is 37. So it's 10 degrees different. So that will naturally rise. And so that puff of air containing particles and turbulent particles rises up rather than just settles down. But as Nick said, they've got to be more like 50 microns, we think, before they start dropping out of that cloud. When you read the WHO statement and a lot of papers, actually, they make this dichotomy between five microns. And it sounds like 
there's so many other factors to consider as you get force, humidity, temperature. The idea of biomicrons, no one's too sure where it comes from, but if you put a particle in a box and the air is completely stellar, there are no other disturbances, over time at five microns, that particle will very slowly fall. A, a particle even smaller than that will just stay suspended more or less forever. So there is a cut point where particles, because of Brownian motion, will stay airborne. So that's sort of the conceptual idea where five might come from. But this is not what the real world's like. In the real world, there is air movement. It's quite slow. You don't notice it, but, you know, it's 0.1 or something of a metre per second that's just sort of drifting by. And that's enough to keep much larger particles moving around in turbulence. So it's a theoretical concept. It's not actually what happens in real life. But I think there is something relevant about the 5 to 10 size, and that is that from studying aerosolized drug delivery, there does seem to be a finite point at which particles won't penetrate fully into the lung. And that probably is about that level. It is possible for something of about 20 to get down, but it would be very rare. But as you get towards 10, and then definitely around 5, they would consistently get into this alveoli-type region But that's very different to what's being propagated as the information. They're saying that these things don't travel a distance in the air. They're not saying they don't they don't travel to the end of the lung, which is two different things. And they mean different things for infection control because you could still get infected in the upper airways or the nasopharynx with larger particles that are airborne. There's something else, and that is when you speak, and there's some fantastic videos of using flare and optics or smoke, when you speak, there's this little puff or cloud or sort of tube comes out of your mouth and it travels about 0.6 metres, maybe 700 millimetres, and that is a concentrated plume containing exhaled all different sized particles. So they can be big and they will be tiny. And after about a bit less than a metre, that breaks up. A lot of turbulence around the edges and the whole thing dissipates and disperses. So somebody who's within that distance in direct face-to-face conversation, not at right angles, face-to-face, they are exposed to this plume of, of high particle count in their face. So the, the idea of a distance of one metre contact does make sense in that context. And because of that, because we also have projectile particles that cover that distance, I think there's been this thought in people's head that because so much COVID transmission occurs, at close range, close contact, it must be the large droplet. So there's a slip in logic. Because it's so close contact, they think it's large particles. It's not. It can be large particles and small particles at that close contact. I think that's never really been taken into account. There was a very good paper from a group of people in Southeast Asia really talking about the history of this work. It's different than what Wells and Co which has been sort of like the Bible, the classical understanding of all these things. I I wish the people in the WHO would read those papers because it changed my view. Speaking of WHO, you you were a signatory on that letter that went to WHO, Ewan. Were you happy with the outcome of that? They did amend their, their briefing, I saw. They did amend it a bit. I think they're a very conservative body and there's a huge amount at stake in making these. And I can understand why they're reluctant. But I think the evidence is increasing that a proportion of transmission is occurring through aerosols which travel more than two metres and probably remain airborne longer, certainly enough to circulate around a restaurant or around a hall or something like that. We simply don't know what proportion of transmission and it has a lot of implications. I think the frustration with this is is that they apply a very high level of requirement for a very high level of evidence to prove that having 
replication competent virus to say you can grow it in culture, which is really the Olympics of virology. You can do PCA, you can pick up virus. But now they're saying, oh, we want virus growing in culture. But even when people do grow virus in culture and it's associated with small particles and it's COVID-2, which they have done, there's still a reluctance to believe it. Well, we know it's not like measles, except in a super spreading event that it is a bit like measles. So there is sort of frustrations, I guess, with their slowness and their high burden of proof. But they say, oh, it's, you know, fomite. Well, they cite references saying fomites, but they're just references showing you do get PCR-based virus on a surface. We all know that. There's no clear model of how you're picking that up on your fingers, what the survival time is on your fingers, how much you're transferring to which mucosal surface, what is the impact of dose off that mucosal surface. When you start to ask for a model using live virus, there is no model, but yet we're all washing our hands. And I'm not saying hand washing is a bad thing. I'm just saying the burden of proof, fomites, is really seems to be pretty low. Same for droplets. Show me the data about the amount of virus carried in these projectile droplets. I'm sure it happens. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but there, there's no quantitative data based on virus culture. But there is for aerosols. And now, even though there is data, it's still not really taken seriously. And there's a big cost to pay for this because we're going to have to adapt to this virus in one way or another. And, you know, we need to be a bit smarter. We can't just socially distance all the time. We need to do other things in our environment, like mask wearing, ventilation and building. So there's actually a big cost at not getting on board with the evidence. You make a really good point there that they're looking for more evidence for airborne transmission, but they're not asking for the same quality of evidence to say that it's droplet or fomites or contact spread. And they've actually been misquoting the evidence that they do use to describe that 5 to 10 micrometer. There is no actual study that shows that. So it's all a bit bizarre. One of the things they do say is that the R0, the replication number, is not as high as measles. And so they're saying that's the evidence that it's not airborne transmission. My, my thoughts are that we're talking about an average, which is taken from a very large statistic. And, and if you look at different outbreaks around the world, you get R0 values range from about two up to four or five or six. So there's no great agreement, but that's fine. These are difficult ideas. And once people start social distancing, R0 changes, et cetera, et cetera. But I think more interesting concept to bring in here is that, as I understand it, most people who are infected do not spread over to anybody else, but maybe 5 to 20% of people spread it to a lot of people. And so your average R0 is 2 to 3. So if that's the case, and that is probably driven by viral load, which goes from 10 to the 1 to pretty much 10 to the 10, there's enormous differences in the quantity of virus in people's upper respiratory tract. The thought is that those people are more likely to be the spreaders, but there's no real evidence. So I think COVID does behave a bit like an aerosol transmitter disease and that there's a few people who do spread it to a lot under the right circumstances. I think it might be worth mentioning a couple of super spreading events that have occurred. There's a famous choir rehearsal in the US where one person COVID and spread it to 80% of the people there. of 61. Yeah, during like two hour rehearsal where in theory they may have shaken hands, but the likelihood is that they didn't. And it's interesting that they all stood there singing, vocalising. So I think, as Ewan said, there's examples where it behaves with an r naught greatly in excess of measles. Measles, I think, is 15 or something. But in that particular example, it was 16. I think we just don't fully understand how the airborne transmission links with viral load, the location within the respiratory tract and things like that. There's, there's more complexity to it. 
I mean, R0 should really be applied to what occurs in the community. It's a very valuable number, but I think it can very easily be misused. You have to look also how individually the virus is spread, which is not an R0 idea. I wanted to come back to what causes aerosols. It, it might be worth mentioning the fundamental formation of particles and the respiratory tract is lined with fluid and a fluid lining something obeys biological physical forces it has a surface tension and in order for a particle to form that surface tension has to be overcome by a force and there's been four main recognized ways in which that could happen that could start distally deep in the lungs and open and closure of the terminal bronchi is one so you get the fluid lining coming together and then when it pops open, there's an instability in the fluid membrane and that creates a particle and they're quite small. And the way they've shown that in experiments is by getting people to breathe out to their closing capacity and comparing the particle formation in that sort of setting versus normal breathing. And they see, particularly when you get to closing capacity, this huge spike in particles. So that's, that's one. Another common one would be shear forces. When you've got flow within a tube, it's exerting on the walls forward directional shear force and that is proportional to the velocity. So at higher velocities, you're more likely to develop that shear. So that's one that's sort of probably important throughout the airways. The other main one would be glottic activity. So the fluid lines the vocal cords and as the vocal cords come together, vibrate, there's been lots and lots of evidence that shows particle formation at the level of glottis of small airborne particles um, and that's related to what you say so different phonemes and vowels and things like that will produce different numbers of particles and then also loudness so the louder you talk the more energy the more force and then there's one that people describe which is more for like the very large droplets would be things dripping out of the mouth and the nose and that's much larger ones but those would be the main mechanisms, would you say? Within the mouth as well, the P's and the T's. And I don't know if that's included in your glossic activity, but different languages probably produce slight differences. The softer languages have fewer particles than the sort of languages. I want to now move on to aerosol generating procedures because there are some that are very clearly defined and there's some very controversial ones. So perhaps we'll start with the more straightforward ones. And based on what you're saying, Nick, if we've got higher flows as a contributor to creating more particles, then that's why we're seeing recommendations, for example, when you're pre-oxygenating to keep your flow rates less than six litres a minute. I'm maybe a bit controversial in what I'm saying. So people should do their own reading about this, but I'm quite sceptical about the whole aerosol generating procedure concept. But I think it's been coined on very little. And again, it seems a bit like the sort of five to 10 micron thing. The main evidence that people quote goes back to the first SARS outbreak and firstly start by saying that the quality of evidence was beyond poor. But if you use the grade criteria, it's grade D, it was all retrospective qualitative studies where they've got in contact with staff who may or may not have got transmitted and decided to sort of fill in questionnaires about what they were doing at what time and how much time they spent in contact with certain patients and tried to map things together. And then someone's mashed that together into a systematic meta-analysis of, of sorts and definitely, I think it's really useful data because what it suggests to me is that there is a association with emergency respiratory interventions in a critically unwell SARS-1 patient with staff wearing different qualities and quantities of PPE. So going back to the basic 
understood fundamentals of particle formation. If you've got a tachypnea patient who's atelectatic and has high mucus load and is really struggling and building up towards needing intubation, and they could be emitting large amounts of viral particles during that period of time. And the SARS viral loads were very high in the sputum about that time as well. So it would make sense that they could be highly infectious. You then need staff who are coming in and yes, some procedures are going to get performed, but there's also going to be a lot of close proximity to the patient for a prolonged period of time during this setting of dyspnea and the build-up to needing these interventions. And one of the things that's actually really interesting in the studies is that the relative risk for nurses was 15 times higher than the actual procedure list who's doing the intubation, for example. And to me, that just suggests that time in the presence of these patients who need these interventions is risk. So that's my feeling on it. I, I am sceptical. And with regards to the flow rates and things like that, when people cough and when they're dyspneic and have a high respiratory rate, the forces and volumes associated with those activities and coughing up until recently, I don't even think the WHA acknowledged it as an aerosol generating procedure, Coughing creates very high flow velocities. A peak expiratory flow for an adult is, is much higher than any of the flow rates that you would get from any sort of face marks that we put on. I probably shouldn't be talking about the research that we're doing because it's unpublished, but I think our conceptual understanding is being backed up by what we're finding. That's an interesting point you make because the Department of Health PPE recommendations changed to say you don't need to be wearing an N95 or higher level of respiratory protection if you're undertaking routine care for a patient with coronavirus who is coughing. So the nurses, the staff on the coronavirus wards are in standard droplet precautions. But what do you think about that recommendation based on the work that you've been doing? I do worry about transmission to staff wearing just surgical masks until we understand the disease transmission in more detail and the risks and how you can risk stratify patients. I think we should follow the precautionary principle and that those staff should have access to respirators. I do believe that talking, coughing, aerosol generating, probably more so than somebody wearing a tight-fitting, non-invasive mask that has the entire volume going through a filter or somebody who's got a cuffed endotracheal tube. I think droplet precautions do provide some efficacy against both smaller and larger droplets, obviously, especially with a patient wearing a surgical mask. If, if you look at the UK, they did a study looking at the first 100 healthcare worker deaths. It's, it's not watertight data in the sense that you didn't follow up everything. None of the 100 deaths were in anesthesia or ICU, including nurses, physiotherapists and doctors who worked within those specialties. So they all came from medicine, surgery, and they were all frontline clinicians, but not in those areas where they were wearing airborne PPE very early on. So that's interesting. And then there was a study in, in China as well that was similar. They cohorted patients into high risk medium risk and low risk of having COVID. The low risk patients were managed by staff wearing droplet precaution, but everyone else with any sort of risk was entirely managed by staff members wearing airborne PPE. And the transmission rate to healthcare workers was 5% in those looking after the low risk with droplet versus the ones wearing airborne PPE. So I think from all of this, we can say airborne PPE does work to protect staff. In terms of things that affects the risk of a health worker getting infected. You've mentioned time in the room. Do you want to just talk us through some of the other factors there? 
Sure, it's the number of viable viral particles in the breathing zone of a healthcare worker multiplied by time, multiplied by your minute volume as well. That that would be key. And then divided by any barrier interventions. So for example, your PPE. There's many, many things that would contribute to that number of viable particles in your air, such as the viral load of the patients, whether they're wearing a mask, the ventilation in the room, where you are in related to the expired jet plume and proximity of the patients. The humidity and temperature and UV light will all affect how viable the virus is. Even how you breathe, whether you breathe through your mouth or your nose, what respirator you put on. And then, of course, there are procedures that could massively increase aerosols. Let's just talk about that. But before we do, that's such a great concept that the risk to the health worker depends on the number of viral particles, and that will depend on how close you are to the patient, their viral load, how dry the room is, the ventilation, and the time in the room. And then it's also depending on source control, so whether the patient's got some barrier protection and your own PPE as well. They're all just really important things to consider when we're trying to evaluate our own personal risk in managing these patients. I wanted to ask you, which do you think are the really high-risk procedures that we do? There was a study in the UK that measured H1N1 particle output and viral PCR load in the air. That did show uh, quite a rise with bronchoscopy. I think from a theoretical point of view, if, if it's through an endoscopic tube, you're going to need higher pressures to maintain uh, a minute volume. You're potentially going to be opening the circuit using saline suction, just going back to the theory you may contribute to further atelectasis, which could then contribute to, to further particle generation, that's definitely got risk. And, and that would obviously bring risk to performing a percutaneous tracheostomy. But you could probably mitigate that by adjusting your procedure to avoid any pressurized gas coming out of the unfiltered percutaneous tracheostomy. One of the more controversial ones at the moment is CPR and whether that generates aerosols. What are your thoughts on that? From the first SARS, there was definitely an event where staff members got transmission from CPR. I worry about CPR because it's obviously an emergent procedure and the airway is not secure. If they've deteriorated from respiratory failure and they have COVID, there would have been a period where they're dyspneic, atelectatic, coughing, potentially in the room. So people are set up. They're going to be rushing their PPE application and things like that. So I think that there's a lot of risk factors there. The actual process of CPR, so chest compressions with ventilation, I think it could. You've got atelectasis, volumes moving up and down through the chest, gas flow, you're through the larynx throughout the whole thing. We don't really know what the shear forces would be, but they would look pretty considerable to me. All through a potentially unsecured airway with people in close proximity, potentially with some of the very high viral loads, I would advocate that could well be aerosol generating, certainly high risk for transmission. But then I believe talking is also aerosol generating. So you've got to remember that in the, in the context of, of what I'm saying. But I also understand from the policymaker's point of view that if you force people to don PPE, it does take time. And that could be the difference between life and death for somebody who's waiting to get CPR. I would advocate the precautionary principle and protecting staff and recognise who's appropriate for CPR, escalating those patients early and appropriately so you avoid them needing CPR. We found when we were writing our guidelines, a tricky one was Thrive or high-flow nasal oxygen. We recognise that's a, a great strategy, hopefully preventing intubation. 
we've tended to advise the anaesthetists to avoid the use of high flow. So, so where, do, where do you sit wearing those specialty hats and now also having a very informed view on particles? There has been a recent publication by someone we're collaborating with in New Zealand, Mark Jeremy. He's looked at high flow in volunteers at different flow rates going up to 60. He didn't really show any rise in probably what the WHO would call droplets up. He, he wasn't measuring below 25 microns. They were doing things like injecting saline into the nose, really trying to stimulate what somebody would have if they had a, a runny nose. Another thing is... 60 litres a minute, again, it's not as much as as what people would generate during coughing fit or even potentially talking. It could generate aerosols, get the higher flows within the turbinates. I certainly would advocate wearing a respirator, of course, in in the presence of a patient. And what that high flow is likely to do is disperse the aerosols that are being generated into a greater volume, so not necessarily creating new ones that are infected per se, although we need to look at that and we don't know. Great. What about women in labour? There was a recent article that came out in anaesthesia and analgesia, and it had a very lovely table that compared the different recommendations from the various anaesthesia obstetrics organisations around the world. And there were a few places where they differed. So one was the use of entonop in labour and whether that's an open circuit. And the other one was whether women in stage two labour and late stage one are also generating particles. This is shown in other studies as well that Speaking loudly does generate articles and we have these high-risk events from the Forester and there's been another event in Sydney here at at a church. Certainly there seems like a strong signal both physiologically, epidemiologically. So I would say that screaming and shouting would be high risk. With regards to entonog, because it's just demand-driven, you just inhale and then breathe out and there's no additional flow. So I wouldn't have thought that it would be because you're just taking what you would otherwise take and then breathing out slightly different gases. I mean, you're going into quite interesting physics about whether what different gases would do to shear stresses in the lung, but I think it probably wouldn't make a huge difference. But certainly singing and shouting and screaming could. The other thing is we're going to be experimenting with exercise with the thought that higher minute volume, greater pressure differentials, the same concept that would apply to a tachypneic patient, that exercise would potentially induce aerosols. It would make sense. Labour is quite hard work and that their minute volumes would be high and their work of breathing as well. Exactly. And that brings me very nicely to the last controversial question I wanted to ask you. For both of you, your, your thoughts on whether the community should wear masks? I think masks work. But I think our guidelines, the advice we're giving people could be a bit more refined. There is something like over a thousand cases, I think, of super spreading events. And if you look at them, something like 95 or more percent of those occur indoors. So your risk of transmission outdoors is extremely low. And I know one of those outdoor cases was where people were face-to-face talking. Clearly masks work in two contexts. They stop the expiration of droplets and small particles, and they, to some extent they stop the inhalation of those as well, depending on the efficiency of the mask and how much it's leaking around the edges and all those sorts of things. Once you do move inside, be that on some sort of transport or in some corridor or in some small room or bar, then you need to think about wearing masks. There may be cases where you can develop other ways of keeping clean air around people's restaurant booths where you have clean air moving upwards so that people could have a meal and look at each other and talk and see each other's faces. 
I think we need to think, you know, how are we going to design a world where these transmission events are much less likely and we can go to the theatre and we can go to movies and we can go to bars and restaurants. We're not doing that well enough at the moment. Just to simply answer the question, yes, I think masks are appropriate in some circumstances and they do work. It's incredibly expensive financially. There's an enormous cost being paid and we're really using a big hammer of social distancing. We could use a mixture of less social distancing and much more intelligent use of controlling the aerosol coming from people. The cost would be much less and I think it would work much better in the long term for an economy. So I'm a big believer in masks. I've been experimenting with masks, but I don't think we understand very well at all how to make a good mask and how masks really should and could work. It'd be great if it meant that we could wear masks and perhaps with better engineering controls, people could return to a normal-ish life. That would just be wonderful. I'm very, very grateful for your time. But I just wanted to get some take-home messages. What we talked about early on was that we don't really know how coronavirus is spread and we certainly shouldn't downplay the likelihood of airborne transmission that we can't just look at simple measures like r noughts. that we need to really look at every event that is occurring. We've got a lot of protections in place, particularly for anaesthetists and intensivists, but we need to think about the other people who come into contact with patients, whether it's in healthcare or in the public. And there's a lot of unanswered questions is, is, is what I take away. So is there anything else? Can I make a couple of other points just to complete the conversation? is that how colds and flu were transmitted has been an ongoing controversy since the 1940s, and that was never resolved. And I found out two completely diametrically opposing camps for many years. Lots of experiments. Everyone's experiment proved their point. So I think we really do need to look carefully and understandably at the data, and it clearly is context-dependent. There was a point I was going to make about the CDC directives that basically it said that there was no nosocomal transmission when contact and droplet precautions, including wearing of medical masks, occurred. So they are saying that you cannot transmit COVID in a hospital setting where people are wearing surgical masks. And it gives two references, which I've looked up, and I found them pretty lightweight references. They, they did say that, but they were very, very small sample numbers. So it's pretty clear that they believe surgical masks do all that is required. One of the difficulties in this area is when you look at the studies comparing surgical masks and N95s, you often don't find a difference. It's a big US study called RESPECT. But when you look at some of the studies, like Raina McIntyre's study, where they looked at the detail of this, of how many people were fit tested for their um, N95s and how well they were trained and how often they used them, then you do start to see an effect. We, we lump surgical masks together. And they're all very different. I've been looking at the filtration, the capacity of surgical masks. It's very variable and some are rubbish. A lot of N95s are not fit tested, don't fit well. So all these fine details of how we use these devices needs to be reviewed. We can't just put it all into one category. Either. Both of them work a bit, but none of them work perfectly. And you need a lot of training and they need to be made to function as well as they can. Now, I agree wholeheartedly. I have this conversation repeatedly. It's not just about sticking an N95 on your face, which is why I'm very reluctant to use the term on its own. It's about the whole package, fit testing, fit checking. It's the whole process. I don't think you can give an N95 to an untrained person and expect it to perform any better than a surgical mask. That, that's true. So you only, because of the pressure drop across them, you need a very small leap for it to fail. Exactly. Nick, any closing comments from you? I think it would be really important if we looked at the basic 
science behind airborne and droplet transmission. A lot of people have done a lot of good work over the years and dedicated their careers to that. And that's all available. And I think that needs to be translated into ultimately interventions within healthcare, but also in the public. And where we have great gaps in our understanding, I would apply obviously the precautionary principle, but also in anesthesia, we often use our basic science, our understanding of physiology and anatomy and things like that to to answer questions that haven't necessarily been proven in good studies. And we do that day to day. And I think as we're waiting for the arguments to catch up, I would exercise that as well. I'm glad you said that because I thought for a little bit back there that we'd have to go back and review our guidelines and delete all the things that we considered might be aerosol-generating procedures. But given the lack of evidence, I think we'll just keep them in there because it's probably the safest thing to advise. They're fine to be safe and to have all this resource thrown at them, but I think that needs to be shared. I just broaden people's awareness of risk, the other frontline workers who are exposed to coughing and talking and all sorts of things like that. Exactly. That's where your equation just comes up with it so nicely. One of the big things I take away from that is time, which logically makes sense. You mentioned that there's a lot of research coming out. I always think it's great when people are right on that front edge of of scientific research. I think it's a really exciting place to be. It is a bit like a cliff. You don't know what you're going to find. You don't know what happens when you jump, but you take the jump nonetheless, and it's just a really exciting place to be. So so well done for being there, and, and thanks for your contributions. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was The Twelve Dance, Part 1 by Maydan, which can be found on the Free Music Archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.